0: Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government. Thank you all very much for coming here today. and I'm delighted um, to be joined by Robert Skidelsky. My name is Gemma Tetlow and I'm Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government. Now, I think my guest probably needs very little introduction. He's perhaps best known for his definitive three-volume work on the life of Keynes. He um, spent much of his career as a Professor of Political Economy at the University of Warwick. His latest book, which we are here to discuss today, is called Money and Government, A Challenge to Mainstream Economics. So if there's any mainstream economists in the audience, then consider yourself to be challenged for the next hour. Um, So this book, which um, comes almost exactly 10 years after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, has three objectives. The first is to understand why the collapse of 2008 was allowed to happen. The second, to understand what government reaction to that was. And the third, what now needs to change to make sure we don't find ourselves in a similar position again. So, Robert, can I ask you to just start off by saying, the first question in your book, how was the collapse of 2008 allowed to happen? What's your thesis about how that happened?
1: It's, uh, I think, in in, in trying to um, uh, understand the causes of of some, some big, big event like that, there is always a problem of deciding how much is due to ideas, um, how much to politics, how much to um, circumstances. Um, And ideas certainly played an important part, um, and I'm thinking of economic ideas in particular, though they weren't the only, because there was a, a huge shift in the climate of opinion um, in the 1980s and 1990s um, which basically wanted to restrict the role of governments in the economy to free up markets um, and was based on the view that nothing much could, be, could go wrong um, provided um, inflation was controlled. And then, then, then the economy would be more or less fine. And inflation was controlled in 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 the period of the Great Moderation. There was very low inflation, and that meant really that those who might have or should have been responsible for maintaining financial instability took their eyes off the ball. They didn't think that um, anything could go wrong in 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 the in the financial sector, and in fact, the financial sector wasn't really modelled. for example, in, 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 in the Bank of England's model, uh, macroeconomic model from 2004 to 2010, they simply, the banks weren't there. Um, there was simply, you know, there were households and firms, and the banks were intermediaries, so you didn't really have to worry about them. That transmission was supposed to be smooth and automatic. And so there was no attention paid, really, to the problem of the build up. Of um, unsustainable debt really um, in, in, in the financial system I mean so that 's one sort of factor. the other is that in a way, the system depended on an un- i mean, the economic system came to depend on an unsound banking system um, uh, because um, the, the, the uh, cheap access to credit or well, access to cheap credit was a kind of replacement of the older social contract. I mean, that is that is one of the one of the themes of um, uh, the book. You had increasing um, uh, inequality of of um, uh, incomes and wealth, and therefore increasing difficulty in maintaining anything like full employment because of you know the the drag on demand uh, of that of that growing inequality without. Um, having uh, a continuous stream of cheap credit and, and, and the ability to have, keep interest rates very, very low in the period of the Great Moderation was to some extent, fortuitous. It, um, it was um, the result of the particular structure of balance of payments between the United States and China. So, in fact, a lot of Chinese money was held in, in U.S. treasuries. And that meant that um, America could run a very, very cheap money policy. Then, of course, there was the political factors, which is that um, they wanted um, people to get housing Um, who couldn't really afford it, and so you have all all those sort of things operating as well. It's quite complex because the the, the challenge to thinking is to try and uh, work out um, the interrelation of the causes. It's not a single cause event, just as the collapse of the Keynesian system in the 1970s wasn 't a single cause event, though Milton Friedman made it into a single cause event
0: and I mean the subtitle of your book is a challenge to mainstream economics. were there non mainstream economists who you think were really on top of this before the crisis but being ignored?
1: Well, I think there were um, but, but 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 they were they were they were very marginalized i mean you know of course um, i mean I think people, I mean like Jamie Galbraith and, and Rajur and I mean there, some people saw that things were unsound and that there was going to be a crash, but then even perhaps Alan Greenspan did, but then you know, things are going all right. Why? Upset, why upset the uh, apple cart? Why, 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 why take away the jug when everyone's having a good time? And so, uh, yeah, everyone thought there might be a crash coming along the road, but at the same time, the models economists had, including the efficient financial uh, finance hypothesis, really all pointed to the fact that nothing could go wrong provided inflation was controlled. Inflation was, sort of came out of the troubles of the 70s as the biggest single cause of the malfunctioning of economies. So if you had inflation being properly controlled by independent central banks, the rest of the system could be allowed to look after itself. I think that, of course I'm exaggerating, but that was the dominant move. Uh, and looking back on it, you actually find confirmation of this. For example, the IMF in 2006 was extremely sanguine about prospects in the future. They said, you know, securitization was lessening risk all around. Um And, uh, you know, things like that. Um, so um, and so, what you what you were getting was much more efficient allocation of capital globally, and the spread of risk to many many different institutions. No hint that the risks might be correlated, no hint of momentum trading, herd behaviour, nothing of that at all, and no mention of fraud.
0: So, looking back now, what? What, if anything, do you think were the sort of key warning signs that economists were ignoring in the run-up to 2008?
1: Well, unsustainable rise in, in, in asset values, particularly property values. Um, some people noticed that. They had, they had charts showing that, you know, um, the, the, the value uh, of, of, of assets was being uh, inflated, and that one day they'd come down. But even if they thought a correction was due, which, you know, a number, of, a number of analysts did, they didn't think it would endanger the core system in any way. They thought it would be a correction. See, the, the language people use is also a ter- terrifically deceptive because what is a correction? Well, a correction isn't, you know, that much. You know, you just sort of... Sort of modification of what's happening and yeah then you go on as before you know if they would said a collapse is due rather than a correction um, then of course people would have woken up but they didn't and so I think a lot of the language is so bland financial language and uh, financial commentary that it actually disguises what's happening in the name of transparency of course
0: And the second question in your book that you look at is what went wrong with the government reaction after the crisis? And what are are the main points you're making there?
1: Well, I mean, one point I do make, which which, um, I think uh, is central, is that prevention is better than cure, easier than cure. You actually can... Um, prevent these collapses from happening, serious ones. You can't prevent the ordinary, ordinary rhythms of, the, of a business cycle. Well, you could prevent them, but I don't think one should, particularly. That seems to be part of the way our, our system works. But once you have a big collapse, once you have falls in um, income of the order, nominal income of the order 5 or 10% and a doubling or trebling of unemployment, then it becomes very, very difficult because a whole lot of um, uh, 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 all the doubts that um, or all the loss of confidence that accompanies the the, the, the downturn itself and, and precipitates is, is then transferred to the government's balance sheet and the numbers become very, very large, deficits balloon, debts, uh, national debt takes off and um, People then get very, the markets then very, very, get very, very worried about the solvency of the state. And at that point there is huge pressure um, to, to, for the government to balance its books. The initial, the initial response to the downturn, common sense over, overcame economics. They realised they had to, for political reasons if no others, stop another Great Depression. So there was a massive stimulus in 2008-2009. In, in, in Many of the banks were bailed out. Um, most of the stimulus, actually fiscal stimulus, came from China rather than from um, uh, the West. But nevertheless, there was a stimulus, and Gordon Brown uh, played a very important part in coordinating it. But but from 2010 onwards, the engines were sort of put into reverse. Then it became the the expansion of the government's balance sheet that uh, was the focus of concern. And and, and then austerity um, became the uh, gospel of the day, promoted by many economists... Um, but um, uh, uh, most most financial analysts see the, the the journal, The Economist, now says in its last issue, we realised that we didn't uh, that fiscal policy and monetary fiscal policy wasn't expansionary enough because of misplaced misplaced concerns about the deficit. But if you read The Economist. In 2009, they say drastic curtailment of public expenditure is the only way to restore the the confidence of the markets. So, you see, um, you have the mindset then, then the realization that um, things uh, 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 were, were done wrongly, um, and 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 what's more, the the the. Um, uh, 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 the austerity idea um, was given a compelling political narrative uh, in this country by by the conservative opposition in 2009, who said that, look, the crisis is due to the um, extravagance of the last government, the Labour government. In fact, public profligacy played no causal role at all in the development of the crisis. They completely reversed the argument. It was private. It was the build-up of private debt, which then was transformed, a lot of it, into public debt um, because of the downturn and the collapse of of the banking system um, that really um, was was the trigger of all this. But you, you, you were then able to blame the government, and then you were able to produce a sort of a narrative I think narrative is crucially important in all this a narrative which went along the lines well you know a public uh, a government is really just a large household isn't it and any any, any any housewife knows you know this kind of line that you know when you, uh, if you if you have a lot of debt and your income goes down you have to cut your spending that's the only way to re- restore your solvency missing what Keynes called the fallacy of composition completely. It's rather like people who understand the consequences of the first move in chess but not the second, third and fourth move. So, you know, the effects of uh, a, an entity like the state which spends 40% of the national income reducing its spending when the private sector is also reducing its spending is colossally depressive. and. Um, that should have been easy enough to to understand, but it it, it it got completely swamped by these credit card stories.
0: I mean, the question of Keynes obviously runs quite heavily through your book, not surprisingly, given your um, background, many years looking at his life. Why do you think the the teachings of Keynes got so forgotten up around the crisis? Yeah,
1: well, I, that is a huge puzzle, and. I think um, you, you um, I mean, another way of putting it is to say why did Milton Friedman's story um, become so persuasive that Keynesian policy simply led to inflation, that there was no, no, no um, uh, regular or no, no, no permanent trade-off between inflation and unemployment, um, that um, there, the Phillips curve was very, very short-run and that each, 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 um, each attempt to lower unemployment led to higher inflation. You know um, that story took hold. But when you when you actually look at what went wrong between 1968 and 1975, that's the crucial period when um, when the Keynesian system really ran into crisis and was effectively dismantled. You find that there were. A, a combination of factors involved which would have tested any system of of political economy at that time. You had the Vietnam War coming on top of already full employment, very tight labor markets in the United States, which then was not paid for by raising taxes. So you had a big inflationary push coming from the United States. You had um, the you know student uprisings and huge wage increases that followed uh, the events of 1968 and 1969 governments bought off uh, bought off what they felt could be a revolutionary situation you had the collapse of the Bretton Woods system. You had the quadrupling of oil prices. Now they're all connected in some way. But if you then sort of say, "Look, let's apply simple Keynesianism to this this sort of you know accumulation of problems," you sort of really run into um, uh, big difficulties. And in, in in Britain, there was the, the view, and undoubtedly, this was. Had no real warrant in Keynes, but it had warrant in in, in British experience of the fifties and seventies. Between fifties and seventies, that any unemployment level above two or three percent represented, you know, uh, a political death for 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 a government that allowed it. So, with inflationary pressures already high. You got the barber boom. You had the deregulation of the credit markets in the early 70s, and of course, infl- and then OPEC coming on top of it. You had, you know, inflation spiraled up to 20% per annum by the mid-1970s. And it's at that point that Callahan makes his speech to the Labour Party conference and says that the policy of the last 20 years, whereby governments try to reduce the rate of unemployment by uh, by uh, increasing spending, that is over. We can't do it any longer. Was that the right lesson to have learned? Was it a fault of the Keynesian system um, that it got into that kind of crisis? I, I think that's a question for Historians, historians of economic thought, I I regard it as a conjunctural crisis rather than a crisis of the system.
0: The final part of your book comes on to the question of what now needs to change so we don't find ourselves back in another 2008. Quite a bit has changed in policy, I think central bankers would say that regulation of the financial system is now very different from what it was like in 2008 but what are you saying about what more needs to be done and what they haven't yet got right?
1: Well it's very convenient to say look the whole of the crisis it wasn't due to macro policy macro policy was 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 fine. it was due to developments in the micro economy and particularly in the financial system. provided we cure those, then things can go on more or less as before, and that means reform of the banks so um, you, you you know you, you know what they are i mean you know they 've beefed up their capital requirements their reserve requirements, stress tests living wills um, better supervisory, um, uh, you know, better supervisory system. The Bank of England has now been given responsibility for maintaining financial stability, which had been outsourced um, by Gordon Brown in 1997. Um, And um, so, I mean there's a feeling that a lot has been done but, but Mervyn King was on I heard him on the television he said look maybe risks have been reduced but they haven't been eliminated well on his watch he didn't you know admit that there were any risks and he says this is very embarrassing well it's more than embarrassing <laughs> I mean maybe embarrassing to him but it's more it was more, more embarrassing to everyone else so the big reform hasn't been done, which is to break up the banking system, to break up the global banks, because it, it's the interconnectedness of the big banks and, of course, the instruments they trade um, through you know, endless financial innovation in these instruments that cause the contagion to run throughout the world economy. Unless you cut some of those links, um, uh, then I think um, it can it can recreate itself. And in fact, we haven't cut the links. We haven't got a world supervisory, uh, a world supervision of the banking system globally because we can't get one. And and in fact, the concentration of banks and uh, has actually increased um, since the crisis. So um, I, I think you're, you know it's, they're quite vulnerable. Apart from which i don 't think many banks have deleveraged sufficiently. I think many banks in Europe are still quite insolvent um, and so there are uh, uh, important important weaknesses there but but I think the main reform at the beginning it hasn 't happened at the beginning of the crisis. there was a lot of talk about uh, how the structure of the banks was wrong and um, the need to separate out wholesale from retail banking and uh, and commercial from investment banking and the ring fencing vickers and ring, ring fencing um, and, and that's that 's sort of going ahead um, but but the, the the big weakness of global banking has not been addressed. I want to go back just to the 1970s. See in the 1970s up to the 1970s and the big big bangs and deregulations of those 70s and 80s, banks were mainly national banks. They They took deposits from their own nationals and they lent to their own nationals. And the links between the different banks were actually quite weak Capital controls were in place. I I don't like the phrase, um, again, a language trap. I don't like the phrase um, that the new system um, has allowed for the um, much more efficient allocation of capital worldwide. It's not capital, it's money. Some of it is, and, and it's a misnomer to use that particular phrase because a lot of it is purely speculative. And a lot of the global banking activities are speculation, they're not capital, they're not creating capital. So, anyway, I think none of that's been addressed. So, that's on the banking <laughs> side. Uh, that's on the banking side. The big reform hasn't happened. Uh, do, and, and, and so, I mean, the there, other other, on, there other monetary areas. policy and, and yeah. fiscal policy. Yeah. Oh. Monetary policy I, I think the whole idea of having an independent monetary the whole idea of outsourcing the whole of macro policy to an independent central bank was misconceived. It because it presumed that <coughs> all you needed to do to keep the macroeconomy stable was um, uh, for banks to have an inflation target and to hit it regularly, which they could do through interest rate policy. I mean, that was, that was the whole, there was one target, one instrument, and that was to manage the whole of macroeconomic policy. I think that just turned out to be wrong. I think macroeconomic policy requires a lot more managing um, and it requires some fiscal managing and responsibility for it has to be with the government. Therefore, I would uh, abolish the mandate of the central bank if I had my own way and knew myself to please. I think I think uh, keeping inflation under control ought to be a responsibility of government and bank uh, central bank jointly. I think interest rates should be set by the government with advice from a central the central bank and, and certainly with the right of the central bank to criticize policy, just as the OBR um, in theory, uh, can can uh, uh, give an account of its view of fiscal policy. Inflation isn't the problem. I mean, it's like the guns of Singapore; they're all pointing out to sea, and the Japanese came by the came at them um, through from the land. I mean, inflation is, from time to time, a problem. Of course, it is, but it's not the only problem um, uh, that 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 uh, um, you know that an economy faces, and. What we've, what we've found in the last 10 years is a persistent inability of central banks to hit their inflation targets. They've, they've never been able to get up to, up to their inflation targets, even though they've poured hundreds of billions um, of money into the economy. So the transmission mechanism between money and prices was never securely based theoretically and really doesn't exist properly. So anyway, you have, you have a big legacy of, of that whole policy of quantitative easing. So I would say fiscal and monetary policy ought to be coordinated. They ought to be, uh, the, primary risk, it ought to be the primary responsibility of the government. Um, and if, uh, if uh, people don't like what the government's doing, they can just vote it out.
0: So in the last section of your book, you also make some quite interesting points about free trade and whether or not the conditions exist in the real world to support free trade as unambiguously a good policy. Could you say a little bit about that and how you would sort of defend against the perhaps more nationalistic protectionist yeah. advance? Yeah, well,
1: I mean, one of my, one of my themes is that um, you know, bad economics leads to bad politics. and if you, and, and, if, and if a democratic, liberal democratic system can't avoid collapses or um, a huge growth of inequality and, you know, the phenomenon of, of half the population being as they th- think of themselves as being left behind, um, then you're going to get these nationalist po- uh, 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 politics. And there's been a striking correlation between the um, events of 2008 and their aftermath and the growth of um, extremist movements in Europe. Basically, their supporters doubled, doubled between 2008 and 2015, and that's not counting Trump, Brexit, and the recent gains in France, Italy, um, um, uh, and and um, uh, Austria uh, and Germany uh, of the what's called the far right. Um, so they've moved from the mainstream. Um, they've moved from the fringes into the mainstream and um, that's a consequence of bad economics, it's not, it's not the only, it's not just economics I mean you know there have been other, other things that people, a lot of people haven't liked um, in, including globalization and the cultural threats of immigration um, has has obviously been a very important uh, explanatory factor <coughs> but. the the, the idea that the the fact that the economy is is not not satisfying um, uh, people's aspirations and that government is not assuming responsibility for what goes wrong um, has weighed with with voters. Um, So what you get in that situation is nationalist economics and of course um, nationalist economics means traditionally, means tariffs and, and tariff wars and currency, competition in currencies. Keynes was very interesting about this. He wrote, an, he wrote a series of articles in 1933 and said, look, um, you know, if you can't get a decent international payment system, um, which avoids these global imbalances developing, your, your nationalist economics are in, inevitable. Um, Therefore, on the international side, he advocated his international clearing union, which would bring simultaneous pressure on creditors and debtors to balance their accounts annually so that you wouldn't get the build-up of big surpluses um, in in one one set of uh, the countries and and, uh, huge deficits or uh, debts in, in the other set and when you have that sort of situation and then you have a global banking system which can put money in whatever location it wants and take it away from wherever it wants, you, you, you just don't, you, you don 't get conditions conducive to a liberal international economy they, they, they break down we haven 't started on any reform of the international payment system we haven 't uh, uh, really got a, a, a plan for a new Bretton Woods if you want to call it that way the, the, the the people who did have a plan for a new Bretton Woods, very interestingly, were the Chinese. And although they were huge beneficiaries in a way, because you know they they were running huge surpluses, they actually saw a need to limit their surpluses. And they proposed in two thousand and nine that there should be limits on on the surpluses um, that countries um, could, could 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 have the americans turned it down they say they said we want to be in control of our own deficits <laughs> and you know um, uh, so you've got trump and 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 the nationalist the nationalist response to to the american deficits which have expanded again after contracting a bit during the slump just slap on tariffs now are they meant seriously or are they are they bargaining chips um, do, do, you know, this is, this is an issue, it's always been an issue in tariff tariff policy, whether they're intended to produce freer trade at the end of the day or whether they are actually intended to be, you know, a quasi-permanent system uh, governing trade.
0: Just before I open it up to questions from the floor, um, I just want to probe a little bit about what you're saying about how activist fiscal policy should be. So one interpretation of sort of Keynesian message would be that government tax and spending should adjust to smooth out the ups and downs of the economic cycle. Or is your argument going a bit beyond that to say there should be a more activist role for government at all times, even
1: yeah? I, I think the, the role of the fiscal role of government should be to prevent um, large scale collapses. The source of collapse, source of collapses, is really the volatility of elements of the private sector. Um, the financial system is, is one. But more generally, I mean, I, Keynes didn't sort of emphasize the financial system as much as we would now, because finance was sort of less important. Um, he emphasized the volatility of expectations of, bus- of the business community, that in fact, because the future was uncertain, um, th- you were always liable likely to have collapses in confidence. They could be triggered off by anything. Uh, and then you'd have then 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 the economy would would nose would, 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 um, nosedive. So he said that really the job of fiscal policy was to offset this by providing for a continuous stream of public investment. I mean that is what I think the Keynesian fiscal constitution, Keynes's fiscal constitution not the fine-tuning Keynesianism of the fifties. So what I think he would have said would be that you should always have a a proportion of investment let's say 20 percent of total investment done by the state, either through a national investment bank, which is one of the things he supported, by the way, or through the, and or through the capital budget uh, of the government. And that investment function uh, was completely liquidated in the period um, of the 1980s and, 19, uh, and from the 1980s onwards. The commercial public sector was sold off, Um, and um, uh, any stabilising role um, which fiscal policy might have was reduced simply to the automatic stabilisers. There was no allowance for discretionary fiscal policy in the post-1980s constitution at all. And I'm not I'm not wholly. am not in favour of unlimited discretion. Of course not. But I think the, the, rule, the rules I've suggested, or I suggest, uh, you know, are not discretionary. Brought basically, you have automatic stabilisers which can still work, and you have long, long-term government investment programmes which just go on, irrespective of the state of the cycle.
0: Well, i open up now for questions from the floor. Uh, there should be some microphones going around. And before you ask your question, could you say who you are and where you're from? Thank you. Right, start down here.
1: Uh, Wynne Grant, University of Warwick. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Do you think there is going to be another crisis, and if so, what is the most important thing we can do to stop it? Yeah, well, I I, I used to, I read your book a long time ago on the political the po- politics of economic policy. It wasn't called exactly that, but it's so, something like that. Yeah, because I think the system is quite fragile, um, and uh, it's likely it's likely um, to show itself in in, in 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 something going wrong with the financial flows, but it it 's not necessarily going to be caused by that, it could be caused by politics um, you know um, because uh, you know with, 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 with politics becoming a, a, a stu- being as turbulent as they are, something could easily go wrong in many parts of the world which will frighten um, speculators um, and, 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 and and destroy the value of assets that could happen um, and once you have any fall in asset values are, are striking, uh, of a striking of a substantial kind then given the rem- the still uh um uh, un- unbroken connections between the different parts of the financial system that is then reflected in the in the in 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 in, in the drying up of credit and, and and the problems of banks and and so what Whatever, wherever it starts, it, it becomes. I mean, you, in, in a way, the last um, financial crisis didn't start in the financial system. It started with the collapse of American house prices. Um, but it immediately, it immediately was re- it, it was reflected then in in the banking system all, all around the world. So that something like that, some event that causes a collapse in asset prices um, sufficiently large to infect the financial system is, is is always possible, and you can't you can't actually you okay. say where, 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 when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen. But you do know that if there's too much debt sloshing around, and then there's all the then there's all the speculative cash that you know has been um, uh, um, put into not into circulation but into the system somewhere by quantitative easing, hundreds of billions of dollars sloshing around somewhere. Where is it? I mean, it's not reflected in, not reflected in, in, in the price level. So, you, 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 you know, you could, you could easily uh, run into another financial crisis. The second question is, will the next one be as serious as this one? One doesn't know. There could be a series of smaller ones. Great.
0: Um,
1: just one at the back left. Thanks. Sir. John, a student at the Tavistock Clinic. Um, could you say a little bit about the relationship between the economy and the war, war economy, whether it's necessary or otherwise in terms of prosperity to, to maintain prosperity? The, the connection between the economy and the war economy. In terms of the ongoing, unfortunately, ongoing nature of, I suppose you could say, military economic activity. I don't know how yeah. else to describe it. Well, you know, a great war is, is good for economies on the whole. Uh, I mean, because uh, they certainly, uh, they, they, they remove the problem of underemployment. Pretty, pretty fast. And there was a lot, but of course I'm not advocating a war to solve our economic problems. I mean, there was, you know, it was quite popular on the left in the 1950s and, and, and 1960s to talk about military Keynesianism. The interesting thing about the United States, I think, is that, the, that although the rhetoric of business is um, uh, very anti, anti-federal government... Um, And um, they all talk about how you must get the federal government off your back. And Reagan said, you know, the federal government takes the first five hours of all the work you do uh, in a day and things like that. The Americans have always been pretty relaxed about budget deficits. And um, the reason is that they're always justified on grounds of, um, um, uh, keep. uh, first of all, of course, um, um, fighting the Cold War keeping ahead of the Russians and latterly terrorism has uh, provided another uh, another justification um, if it's if it's a question of um, running a budget deficit in order to spend m- more money on hospitals schools um, welfare and things of that kind they're very opposed to that but um, money spent on the military has always been acceptable and of course um, the the procure procure I mean one of the aspects of military Keynesianism was American procurement policy. I mean the, the state was was a big economic actor in the United States on the on the military side, um, and um, there were lots of spin-offs that we know about, which of course um, went into 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 technology. So, um, yes, as a matter of fact, there is a connection. Um, around the world between state spending and war preparations. Is it a necessary connection? No. You could in principle spend this money on non-war activities. It's very rare that you hear the argument that the state is bound to pick losers in connection with military expenditure. Very rare, only with civilian expenditures is it, bow- is it bound to pick losers. No, they're very proud of the winners that the government uh, investment programs brought um, um, on the military side. After all, it's enabled us to win the Cold War, didn't it? Uh, so, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely rubbish that um, public investment is bound to be less efficient than private investment. Um, uh, it's, it's inefficient, and a lot of private investment is hugely inefficient as well. Um, as between the two, you know, there are some theoretical arguments that suggest why private investment should be more efficient, but once you get into a thing of firms being too big to fail, or banks being too big to fail, you've actually removed the budget constraint from a lot of private companies, which was meant to be the basis of their superiority um, in, in efficiency. So these are all areas which you know, are very well worth discussing and talking about, but there's no hard and fast rule uh, which says that private, uh, private investment is bound to be more efficient than public investment. Alistair? Uh, Alistair Smith, University of Sussex. Uh, I I was struck by the fact that the first thing you said in answer to Gemma's question about what things have not been done that ought to have been done was breaking up the banks. But when we look at what happened in 2009 in in the UK, the banks which led the crisis were Northern Rock and HBOS. Neither of them titans of the the system. Uh, And even when the big banks got into trouble, it was because they bought Dud securities from each other. It wasn't, be, it wasn't the size of RBS that caused its problems; it was its behaviour. So I'm puzzled as to why you think breaking up the, the banks is something that is at the top of your list of the things that we should have done and haven't done. Well, I think I think um, I think it's the, it's the breaking of the links between of, of the global banks. There's, I mean, you know, people people do talk about um, systemic uh, banks that are. Sort of integral to the system, they are large enough. I mean, in other words, the, the amounts of assets they hold. I mean, it, it's fine if you hold a small amount of dud assets, but if you hold, if 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 your dud asset, dud assets are a sizable proportion of total assets, then of course um, you, you you know you do infect. The, the whole financial the whole financial system is affected by that. Um, so what what I'm what I'm um, uh, uh, concerned about is um, that um, you should uh, cut the the links between the, the the big international banks. You should you should um, you should restrict their ability to allocate money um, uh, round around the place because that means that the financial crisis in one one part of the economy spreads um, uh, to, to the rest as for, as for the high street banks yes you should break them up in the sense of Glass-Steagall Stiegel, um, so that you should separate out investment regulated uh, deposit taking banks from um, investment banks and not worry about investment banks um, but you should, but, but of course, banks like you know HSBC, Barclays should not have been holding the securities uh, that they were. Um, on, they shouldn't have had them on their balance sheet. And one of the one of the um, one of the things you could do, um, of course, um, in the in the in, in the in the loan making deposit banks, is to um, revive the model of um, hold, holding, holding the mortgages on their books and not selling them off to speculative um, uh, speculative shadow to the shadow banking system, and, and then that they circulate in the form of securitized debt around the system. I don't know why uh, that hasn't been um, why that hasn't been done which is, you know, say to a bank, okay, you give a mortgage, fine, you have to hold it on your balance sheet for five years at least. Can't securitize it. Um, okay, well then, see so you get the argument, the smooth argument, oh, but that means less people will be able to buy their own houses. Well, maybe less people should be able to buy their own houses if they can't afford them, or if they can only afford them by these finan—this financial jiggery pokery—that you know makes um, the, the the you know, your, your present consumption of future wealth seem risk-free. You know? <clears throat> okay. But that's a good question, and I mean it's got to, you know one needs to think more about that. Hello, I'm Adam Sharples. I used to be a civil servant. Um, I wanted to ask you, you're critical of austerity as a response to the crisis ten years ago and I very much agree with you on the case for public investment but do you think there are any limits to the scale of public debt to GDP that a government can take on in a sustainable way and if so what are they? I can't, I can't see any. I mean um, Provided, provided that um, you know the the um, uh, the, the debts are, are, are properly serviced and, and they can they can pay interest and and, um, and uh, uh, pay the pay the pay the bondholders. I mean, you know, you look at these debt levels in different countries, and they vary enormously. In fact, mo- in fact, there was a rather low level of public debt. Uh, by historical um, by historical uh, standards, in the run-up um, to the crisis, the Japanese had a very high uh, national debt GDP ratio, um, but they, they they you know it, it didn't it didn't threaten it, it didn't threaten the stability of the Japanese um, uh, system. I mean, it didn't crash. Um, and um, Italy had a rather large debt-GDP ratio. Britain had a rather small debt-GDP ratio before, before. the. It was well within uh, Gordon Brown's. It was less than 40%. Then it went up to 43% just before the crisis. But these are low ratios. The idea that there is a magic number beyond which um, uh, the, the size of the public debt affects the rate of growth. That's a, it's a psychological question. I mean, Reinhardt and Rogoff thought that empirically, you know, um, it was about ninety percent. But that was a, that that was an empirical um, that was an empirical conclusion based on some quite dicey um, uh, econometric work. And then, if you'd ask them, well. Why is 90% um, so important? They would have said, well, that's at the point when the markets start getting edgy about the size of the debt. But then to, why 90% and not 95% or 100%? It just becomes a figure that's established in the imagination. And so they look at, they look at the debt-GDP ratio and say, hey, this is getting a bit in, in da- into danger territory. Why? Um, when a government has its own, when a government has its own um, central bank and its own and can borrow in its own currency, there's no obvious limit to the size of the debt it can chalk up. Now, by that, I'm not really advocating the monetary financing of the deficit. That you know, you just eliminate your debt by borrowing from the central bank because you never have to repay it. I'm not advocating that. I think that is a slippery slope. But in terms of is there a a cliff edge beyond which you fall off because you just can't service your debt any longer, the markets are not prepared to lend you the money any longer. I don't believe there is a... Now what's important is that the debt shouldn't I think go on rising because that suggests that a lot of the money is being spent on things that do not give you a rate of return enough to cover um, your your interest payments and and, and principal. So if there's a tendency for the national debt in normal times to go on rising from whatever level it starts, then I think there are signs of danger. But what that level is I think it varies from you know, place to place, situation to situation.
0: There's a
2: question right at the back. Lady in Hello. Um, thank you for that. Um, I was wondering, I don't know if you've seen the Lehman trilogy, the three-hour play on the foundation of the bank. And if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, but I, um, have.
1: <laughs> I think I've seen some of them anyway. <laughs> um,
2: but it... Um, I guess one of the morals of it is that um, when it was being started, the way in which it viewed what it was doing was to use money to invest in things, in projects, in um, movies, um, trains, etc., and that maybe the way in which it lost its way was that money became a good in its own right, as opposed to what you could do with it. And I guess this is less of an economics question, more of the politics and the narrative of it. But I wonder if one of the reasons that we struggle so much with the aftermath of crashes and the causes of, is that we are looking at them in terms of money as a good in itself and what's being done with it and how it's moved around, as opposed to what it can achieve. So, the cheap houses, do we want people to have cheap houses and what is the politics of that, as opposed to, do we think there were bad debts moving? And is there a way of, I don't know, humanising the way in which we think about economics in order to better manage it?
1: Well, it 's a very good question. you see, Keynes would have said, and I agree with him, that money has always been a thing in its own right, and it 's only when um, the confidence of, of, of business is high that money ceases to be held for its own sake. I mean I mean Keynes, after all, really was the inventor of, of the doctrine of liquidity preference and Um, he he thought that that the tendency to hoard money was always there. It was dispelled, I mean, when prospects were incredibly bright and everyone was very, very confident um, uh, of of chancing their money on longer-term projects, um, that you, you, you got a decline in liquidity preference. But it was always there. And in periods of great uncertainty... Um, then people wanted uh, uh, to increase their holdings of liquid assets. And, and that's when... And this has always been the role of money. He, 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 he described money in the general theory as a subtle connect link between the present and the future. The future's uncertain. And in, in between the present and the future, there's money. And that's always been so. I mean, probably from... That was probably the... You know that was probably the the source of the origins of money, in, in, in credit and credit and debtor relations. You know they they were just sort of receipts um, for for debt, um, which then got traded. I mean a lot of people believe that that's how money started um, in way back in the in the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, um, two thousand. 3000 BC. So money has always played an absolutely central role in the performance of economies. It's not just something that um, uh, disturbs things when it gets out of order. You see, I mean, John Stuart Mill said money is completely insignificant. He said it was exactly what you think it ought to be, which is a way of, you know, a way of um, um, just an intermediary between decisions um, to, to lend and decisions to borrow. But he said, no, Keynes it, 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 it. said, no, that's not, that doesn't exhaust the role of money. Milton Friedman reestablished that classical dichotomy. He said, there is no such thing as liquidity preference. And that was the assumption of um, the monetary authorities um, in, in the 80s and 90s. And and, and what's more, it was the assumption of quantitative easing. They thought, um, I've talked to them, um, uh, some of the people about this. Um, They um, said there's something called the real balance effect. Um, When people get extra money, they spend it. The idea that they might actually hoard it in cash or use it for purely speculative purposes um, was actually ignored. Um, in the theory of quantitative easing. I, and, and I, I, it's not just talking to the, the Bank of England officials. I've read the minutes of the Monetary Policy Committee over this period, and there's no, there's no hint of liquidity preference anywhere in their discussions.
0: Right, we only have a few minutes left, so I'll take a few questions together in the next round. So there's one just here, and one in the middle of the back there. I'm Dice McKeon from whichinvestmenttrust.com. One of the reasons why many people are uh, keen on uh, the idea of an independent central bank is we don't trust that there will be a better outcome from handing over to the politicians or even to the democratic uh, uh, process. So I wonder why uh, you don't feel that uh, perhaps we could reform
1: independent central banks in ways you touched on earlier rather than abolishing it altogether.
0: Yeah, I don't sorry, think. Can
1: we just yeah, the sorry. Okay, sure. Um, so there's one at the back and then a final one down here, please. Um. Um. Okay, yep. All right, sorry. Um, pardon me. You've argued for public investments to rise to 20% of the economy rather than for 2% at present. How would you constrain private consumption to? You know, create, you know, to to as part of our p- process. Also, given that um, there's demand, whether there be demand to spend more in the NHS, on revenue spending, on police, on youth work, as well as to give public sector workers a higher rate of pay. How would the political acceptability? How would you tackle the political acceptability of a rising deficit and probably rising inflation as well? Okay, and final question. Uh, Ed Palmer of the Office for National Statistics. Do you think we're good enough at measuring what's happening in the economy, but also in the uh, financial sector, to be able to spot the warning signs of the next crisis and also develop the right policies to address that?
0: Great, thanks. So we had three questions. The first one was, um, people don't trust politicians. Could we just reform independent central banks to solve the problem instead? The second question was, effectively, is public investment going to crowd out either public current spending or private spending and third question from Ed on whether the ONS can measure things properly to actually spot these things?
1: Um, well, the the, the, um, the easiest one to answer is the, is the third. The answer is no. <laughs> but what we, we, what we but maybe we're setting our standards too high. We, 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 we have approximations. We mustn't treat them as precise numbers. And, of course, um, uh, we have history. I mean, you know, um, yes, I don't know who it was who says that history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. Uh, so we have patterns. We, 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 we also have certain ratios um, which, um, you know, have, have some, some um, uh predictive power. I think the mistake in macro in macro policy, and certainly it was a mistake in, in the fine tuning um, uh, of the Keynesian era, was that they thought they knew exactly where they were in a in a particular cycle and therefore exactly when to turn on the tap and turn it off. Well, we don't have that kind of knowledge. We're likely to make great mistakes um, in, 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 in in trying to do that. So that's why I'm actually against um, you know Anxious interference with every turn, um, but you see the, the the policy of the Bank of England was not not dissimilar. You know, if you take something like Taylor rules, you you know you, again you have a a mechanical kind of tool which you use whenever your numbers you know do this or that, and and, and they they weren't very successful at it. I mean, it, they were lucky. Um, it turned out not too bad, but I was on 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 um, you know one of uh, the House of Lords Economic Com- Affairs Committee, and, and we were always um, we were always given these bank forecasts, and they never actually matched up with what happened. But they didn't they didn't deviate it too badly, deviate from it too badly. So the answer really the quick answer is no. See, crowding out. Yeah, of course, you get crowding out. If you're, if you're at full employment and then you sort of add a whole lot of extra government spending onto it um, without taking any steps to restrain civilian uh, private consumption, you get inflation. But the point is that um, you're. What uh, um, what a a, a steady stream of investment income is investment is supposed to do is actually to achieve the situation of of full employment. The, The the premise behind it is that normally, if you just leave it to the private sector. To do all the investment, you're going to get normally a situation of underemployment. I mean, that that was Keynes's argument, and I think there's a lot of evidence in that. If a private the private sector alone always relies on quite a lot of spare capacity. If you increase public spending in public spending in order to um, reduce the spare capacity. You don't run into inflation problems. You do eventually if you go on doing it. Of course you do. At full employment you run into inflationary problems if you add um, if you add another, another uh, a lot of spending. That's what happened in America in the 1960s. America had 4% employ- uh, uh, unemployment rate which for America is right at the maximum Um, in 1965-6, on top of which you got massive extra spending as the Vietnam War escalated. So of course you got inflation. Um, And the last question was, um, yeah, oh, yes. Um, You see, well, there are two answers to that. First of all, I don't think politicians are quite as bad as you think. It it, is just the record. I mean, between 1950 and 1970, on the whole, um, this is the Keynesian era. Um, they, um, governments ran balanced budgets. They didn't. They didn't, actually. If they, if they wanted to increase spending, they raised taxes. Now, that, raise, that, that, that you know, gives rise to another problem, which is, is there a tax? Uh, you know some limit to the amount you can raise taxes before you uh, again affect incentives, but that's a different problem. Uh, and 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 so I don't think governments are quite as untrustworthy as the uh, American-based narrative. Um, I had a, a, a it's, it's the last point I want to make. I had a, a very interesting conversation with Milton Friedman. Um, and uh, this was in the 1980s. I was writing my book on Keynes, and he said, "Come and come and see me in my house. It was in, up there in California somewhere, and we spent the day together, and he said, "You know, had Keynes been an American, he would have realized how corrupt politicians were in England for some reason, you know they were a bit more reputable than they are here um, and, and that reflected something. Um, About the public culture of the two of of the two societies, but now when when you get a theory like the the you know public choice theories that then became uh, they came out of America public choice theories, which is that politicians are only after feathering their own nests in one way or another, either uh, either to get the the voting nest, or or, or, you know civil servants just want to increase their budget. When you get that view of politicians, then of course you want to say, um, you know, of course they must be restrained. Uh, The second uh, way is you can't outsource macroeconomic policy to an independent central bank. They're not accountable. And and they're not neutral. The policy isn't neutral. It has effects. And those effects have to be accountable. And so I go back to my central point. In a democracy, there is no way of holding politicians accountable except voting them out. And um, there you are. Ooh, you object to that. <laughs>
0: Spot to debate. We'll have to continue afterwards. We really have run out of time now. Thank you very much, Robert, for joining us. Thank you to all of you for coming. If you would like a copy of Robert's excellent book, they are available outside. But would you please just join me and thank you, Robert.